The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, or for prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of any other illness. Always consult with a mental health or healthcare professional before engaging in any activities promoted in this podcast. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time geek. We know it's been a while since we had a new episode of Superhero Therapy, and we're excited to be back to discuss the very heartwarming and mentally health-rich Apple TV series, Ted Lasso. It's so heartwarming and so entertaining. We just binged right through it. (laughs) It's wonderful. So let me give you a little background on what Ted Lasso is. Ted Lasso is an American college football coach. His world changes when he is unexpectedly recruited to coach the English Premier League soccer team, which is called AFC Richmond. Despite having no experience coaching soccer, Ted Lasso hops on a plane and goes across the sea to England. Lasso is hired by the new owner of the team, Rebecca Welton, and it is her hope that he will fail miserably And this is her form of revenge against her unfaithful ex-husband, who was the previous owner of the team. Ted's charm, his personality, and his sense of humor begin to touch the hearts of those around him, including Rebecca, the team, and those who are just wondering what the hell an American football coach is doing coaching professional soccer in England. It's a very neat little premise. So being the leader of a team in a sport you have very little knowledge about must inspire severe imposter syndrome. Can you discuss imposter syndrome and the way this show explores it? Absolutely. Usually, imposter syndrome refers to feelings of imposterisms, the beliefs that we're not good enough for a particular promotion or achievement or accolade that we might have received. And in majority of cases, those particular rewards are well-earned, but the individual might believe themselves to be unworthy. In fact, people who are really passionate about what they do are more likely to struggle with imposter syndrome. Albert Einstein and Maya Angelou were just some of the people that we know of that struggled with imposterisms. For somebody like Ted Lasso, who's had years of coaching experience and leadership experience with American football, it does make sense that he would struggle with imposter syndrome going to teach a sport that he knows virtually nothing about. But as we learn in the show, coaching soccer in this particular case is not necessarily about knowing the rules of soccer. It's about knowing how to be a leader. It's about knowing how to bring the team together, how to encourage the players, how to create cohesion, something that this particular team did not have before Coach Lasso and his co-coach, Coach Beard, arrived to the UK. Yeah, Coach Beard is great. He's such a great supportive system for him. He, he seems to know everything and be very, he, I don't know, he's, he's guru-like. He's actually my favorite character. I absolutely adore him. <laughs> so speaking of imposter syndrome, I find it really interesting, the whole concept. I think everybody feels it at one time or another, no matter what you're doing. I often feel it when I'm making music. Especially when I play in front of people, I feel like I can't play. (laughs) So it hits. The interesting thing that I find is that it seems that the only way to combat imposter syndrome is to become the imposter. It's by embracing the imposter. What are your thoughts on this? The irony of the imposter syndrome is that it's the most well-kept secret in the world. Majority of people, something like 70% of people in the world struggle with it, especially professionals. And that's across all fields, all uh, gender identities, all sexes, all races, although marginalized individuals are more likely to have imposter syndrome. 
the sad truth is that it doesn't go away as we have more training, more experience, more achievement, more recognition. In fact, sometimes it gets worse because as people get promoted, they might think, uh oh, I really don't deserve it this time. And if people find out how much of an imposter I am, they'll surely fire me and everybody else will find out. People mistakenly think that other people around them are more deserving, more prepared, and should be the ones in those positions. The thing is, is that having an imposter syndrome means that you care about where you are and what you're doing. So in some ways, imposter syndrome is almost a prerequisite for where we are. Because if we didn't have it, it would mean that we don't care enough. So the very fact that you have imposter syndrome when it comes to you playing the guitar, for example, means that you're a wonderful musician and that you need to be in this field and you need to continue playing. And for any of you listening, if you struggle with imposter syndrome in a particular field that you're in, that is almost proof, if you will, that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You know, I was just thinking of that adage that's saying you know the only way out is through you know and just being the posture and just embracing it exactly well and then you can move on <laughs> exactly well and what we're finding is that the best way not necessarily to combat it because like i said it doesn't really go away it, it wanes and sometimes increases but the best way to make it more manageable is actually to talk about it a lot of people are surprised to learn that people around them struggle with imposter syndrome i struggle with imposter syndrome every single day like i'm feeling it right now. You know, I'm thinking that I'm not a good enough podcaster and not a good enough therapist and amateur writer and I don't know what I'm doing and what I'm talking about and that I need to be doing all of these things and, you know, doing like a 10 hour workout before recording a podcast and having like a specific kind of meal. It's just, you know, some kind of preconceived notions that we carry that we think we need to do in order to be quote unquote good enough. But the truth is, most of us struggle in this way and the more we talk about it the easier it will be for us to humanize this experience that most people around us feel too right i have a question for you based off of my experiences i know i'm a good musician and especially when i am playing by myself or whatever but i have a hard time playing in front of people i used to be in bands and i never cared being in front of an audience or anything like that but as i've gotten older I can't even play in front of people that I feel comfortable around and all of that stuff. It's very hard for me. What steps can I take to increase my comfort zone there? What can I do? <laughs> I love that question. And so there were kind of two questions there, right? And so maybe one was to increase your ability to play, to continue that practice. And the other was to increase your comfort. The comfort part might or might not come. You might always be a little bit uncomfortable or maybe over time you'll feel more comfortable. But as you said earlier, the only way out is through. And so I actually have a challenge for you. I think that you should play something, if you're willing, of course, on this episode live. Yeah, I don't know about that just yet. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, even though it's just people listening to me. I still feel the eyes. I, I don't know. It might be a little judgment, but I think it's self-judgment when it really Absolutely. comes down to it. It's like I, no one's there to judge me. If I play in front of people and I have, I'll mess up a lot and I'll forget the song or the chord that was supposed to go there and things like that. It, it, it's so interesting to me. But think about it. It's about playing music. It's not about playing it perfectly. It's not about never messing up. It's not about practicing so much that you get it to where you don't mess up at all. I mean, you could spend 10 years practicing one song to where you play it flawlessly without ever messing up. But is that your goal? If that's your goal, go for it. But if your goal is to make music, right, it yeah. means taking it with all the imperfections it brings. You know, one of my favorite public speakers is Brene Brown. And if you watch her speak, I imagine that maybe she does some kind of rehearsing, I don't know, but majority of her presentations, she might stutter, she might trip over her words. And I actually find it endearing. I find that it makes her a more authentic speaker. And I think that the best kind of musicians are ones that are willing to play, even if they accidentally slip, you know, on the string and then they try again. And so 
I think you're an amazing musician. I've known you for many years now. I've seen you play. And I also know that what makes you a truly amazing musician is that you play different things all the time and you're willing to make mistakes in order to learn a song. And so this is my challenge to you. Let's get back to Ted Lasso. Enough on me. <laughs> this is becoming a therapy session here. So this show has so many wonderful modes of mental health that they explore. And one of them that I see through a couple of characters is this cycle of abuse. There's this young football star named Jamie Tart. He is a very abusive and narcissistic character. He's he's kind of a dick. One, two, three. Jamie, you a germaphobe? Because I'm trying to think of a reason you didn't put your hand in with the rest of the team. Didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, man, sometimes you remind me of my grandma with the channel hopper. You just push all the wrong buttons. Well, then I was about you and me make a deal. Okay, I'm listening. You get to keep on preaching all of your yeehaw bullshit. And in exchange, I'll keep ignoring you because this team is tragic. I scored all the goals, and I'm the only one they come to see. Does that sound fair? Hands in. You know, I'd love to hash out some of the nuances there, but I'm not having the best of days. Actually, it doesn't matter what you say, because in my head, I'm just there in the crowd cheering my name after I scored a goal tonight. Jamie Tart, Jamie Tart, As undeniably catchy as that tune is, I need you to cut the crap right now. Tart receives the ball. Clever there. Go on, Jamie. He finds space. He has Obisanya on the right. No, he's doing it himself. Oh, what a finish. Jamie Tart, an incredible solo goal. Jamie Tart, you fucking king. And thanks to budding superstar Jamie Tart, Richmond are right back in it at 2-1 in the 29th minute. When we get an opportunity to meet his father, there's really no surprise why he acts out in the way that he does. His father is extremely abusive and demands excellence from his son and just ridicules him and puts him down all the time. And there he is, my son, my own flesh and blood. <laughs> Poor Jamie, my son. Now, Maybe I'm thinking he's out still in Manchester and that's why he missed that sitter in the first half. Oh, ho, ho. woo! You absolutely baldy. <laughs> You're baldy, what were you thinking? Oh, I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding, eh? <laughs> hey, look, uh, do us a favour and get them born bug past security. They want to go on the pitch, take a few snaps and all that, yeah? Rather than not... Yeah, they just want to look around, it'll only take a second. <laughs> I'd rather than not... What? Well, you know, can I go little moody bitch just because you got your ass served to you on a plate, are you? Don't speak to me like that. Huh? Don't speak to me like that. Uh, Don't speak uh, to me like that. Uh, okay, well, let's see if you can hear this. Hmm. You know that ickle TV show you made? It just made it easier for Manchester City to kick you to the curb. Look where you are now. Twaddling about with a bunch of amateurs. No offence, no offence. <laughs> huh? Don't turn your back on me, you pussy! <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, you can have that one for free. Have you got a doping time? Hey, let's have it, Jamie! Don't you forget where you came from! Watch the door! Oops. Can you discuss the cycle of abuse portrayed in this series through the character Jamie? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And I think that for some people, seeing Jamie's relationship with his father can be really relatable. When we first meet him, as you said, he seems like a really self-involved character. I wouldn't necessarily call him narcissistic, but there are certainly some tendencies, right? In that he's pretty preoccupied with his self-image and with how people think about him, but he doesn't seem to care if people agree with him or not. He seems to just kind of want to get under everyone's skin. He wants to be the star. He doesn't want to pass the ball, for example, and play with the team. He doesn't want to be a team player. 
he wants to be the one scoring all the goals. And so I think that when we're raised in the kind of environment that Jamie was in, where his father seems to have been the kind of person that, as you said, beat him, shamed him, abused him, and even to this day treats him horribly, even in front of people, it can make anybody not the most compassionate person. But there are three different factors that affect who we are. And that is nature, nurture, and choice. Nature has to do with genetics that we inherit. Judging from his father, just from what we know about that, Jamie doesn't necessarily come from the best kind of maybe genetic background in terms of the way that people in his family handle emotions, at least when it comes to his dad. Nurture is what we witness around us. And, you know, again, seeing the way that Jamie was treated taught him that this is what he needs to be. And furthermore, because he was a star, he was able to get away with bad behavior. Both his now ex-girlfriend, Keely, and the previous coach and his team members would let him do just about anything. They would let him be a jerk to other people because he was the best footballer. He was the one scoring all the goals. Well, not Ted Lasso. This is where choice comes in. So Ted not only benched Jamie for bad behavior, he showed him that the only way they can actually win together is by playing together. And it took Jamie a lot of setbacks to realize that. It took him being with this other team. It took him getting kicked off and it took him getting kicked off the dating show. And it took him being disliked by a lot of people and getting broken up with by Keely to realize that he needs to find humility and that he needs to be a part of a team. When he comes back, he has to essentially start from scratch. Nobody will talk to him. He has to get the kind of treatment that people get when they're a brand new player. He has to almost like go through the initiation process. And I think that this was a really important lesson for him to learn because in learning about humility and learning to be a team player, he also is able to find compassion for himself enough to then stand up to his father. And I think that was really important. He's able to own who he is. He's able to apologize for his mistakes, for example, to Roy and to Keely. And I think that he becomes a better person because of all the choices that he's made and all the consequences that Ted Lasso made him face. Yeah, it's great to see Jamie grow as a character from what he was and what he is now and how he's actually just really trying. He's trying to be a better person. In an opposite light, another character kind of experiences similar things. His name is Nathan Shelley or Nate. He has a different relationship with his father. Nate's father is more negligent, I'd say, and dismissal towards Nate. He often ignores him and doesn't give him any praise or recognition about anything good. I mean, he's, I forget what they call it, but he basically, you know, cleans up after all the players at first he's you know i want to say the ball boy but i don't really know what they call it and then he becomes an assistant coach because ted lasso gives him a chance and that promotion is huge and it's awesome but his father doesn't even give him the time of day can you discuss this type of abuse and how it affects nate's treatment of others and how his arc goes from someone who's kind of nice to someone who's not so nice you know, I'm really glad that you asked this question. I'm glad you brought it up because on the surface, it might seem like a different kind of abuse, but it's not. It is a form of severe emotional abuse. His father ignores him. And whenever Nate has any kind of success, his father puts him down further. Although one seems like more passive and the other, the way that Jamie's father treats him is more active, they're both equally damaging. Both of these types of abuse create the kind of message for the recipient that person is not important, that they're not valued. Furthermore, for somebody like Nate to be treated the way that they were by their parents, especially by dad, it can create this belief that there's only so much room for achievement and praise. This is an idea that Brene Brown talks about in terms of the idea of scarcity, that there's only so much success to go around, only so many promotions to go around. 
And therefore, if somebody else gets promoted, you won't get it. And as we see in Ted Lasso, he's happy to have four coaches. Just because he promoted Roy doesn't mean Nate is any less of a coach. It's interesting that because of the way that Nate's dad has treated him, I think Nate is so hungry for support, for recognition, and for a father figure that he found in Ted that I think he essentially becomes jealous and even resentful to any kind of other father-son-like relationship that Ted has with anyone else, including Roy. And it is at that point when Roy joins the team as a coach that we see Nate starting to escalate. It's really heartbreaking what Nate had been through, the way that he internalized the meanings of what he's been through. And it's unfortunate that the choices he then made are what essentially made him a villain. I'm hoping that we'll see that change in the next season. But it was really sad, although not unexpected, to see him join the other team. Yeah. Do you think that he sees his father in Ted Lasso? I know he sees him kind of as a father figure, but he really snaps at Ted, basically saying, you didn't give me recognition. It's almost like he was saying things that he wanted to say to his own dad. Oh, absolutely. I do think that he said things to Ted that he wanted to say to his father. I also think that he put all of his love that he wanted to have for his father, but it was never reciprocated toward Ted. And Ted is not his father, but very often kids who were abused and emotionally neglected do that, right? They'll find a mentor or a friend or a teacher or a therapist or somebody, right? And if that person fails to meet their expectation as a parental figure, that person might be furious. And I think that sometimes it can be a really unhealthy situation because in a situation like Nate, I think he had too many expectations of Ted that he never communicated. And so Ted never even had a chance to talk to Nate about what he could and could not do for him. Everything okay? Yes, Ted, everything is okay. What is it? Hmm? What'd I do? What are you talking about? Oh, come on, man. You're mad as hell at me. I just want to know why. Huh? What have I got to learn here? You want to know what you did? Yeah, please. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what you did. You made me feel like I was the most important person in the whole world. And then you abandoned me. Like you switched out of life just like that. And I, I worked my ass off trying to get your attention back, to prove myself to you, to make you like me again. But the more, the more I did, the less you cared. It's like I was fucking invisible. I haven't even got the, the photo I gave you for Christmas up in your office, just a picture of dumb Americans. And now you're going to play Nate's false nicer when the team fuck up, which they will. Okay? You can blame it on me. Well, no, fuck that. Everybody loves you. The great Ted Lasso, I, I think you're a fucking joke. Without me, you wouldn't have won a single match and they would have shipped your ass back to Kansas where you fucking belong with your, with your son. You, you sure as hell don't belong here. But I do. I belong here. This, di this didn't just fall into my lap, right? I, I earned this. I know you didn't, Nate. And if I didn't tell you how important you were to me enough, I'm sorry about that. No, no, you're not. You're full of shit. Just fuck you, Ted. I mean, it's so interesting. So many layers to all these characters and these themes that are going around. And it would appear that, like, I've heard mentioned on multiple occasions that hurt people hurt people. And you're kind of seeing that with Jamie and Nate. And like I mentioned before, Rebecca wanted the team only so that it would fail. And she wanted them to lose so that she could have revenge on her ex-husband who publicly cheated on her and humiliated her. Rebecca, Jamie, and Nate seem to lash out at others because they're in pain. Can you discuss the concept of hurt people hurting people and what it might take to break that cycle? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you said, hurt people hurt people. A lot of times when people have unprocessed hurts, they want to feel better. They want to soothe their pain. But when people have experienced some kind of an injustice, they might erroneously believe that the only way they'll feel better is by having some kind of vengeance or they might not even consciously see what they're doing and lash out on other people as Rebecca frequently does. For example, Rebecca often lashes out on Leslie Higgins, making him kind of the recipient of her wrath that was actually meant for her ex-husband, Rupert. And I think that for a lot of people who are in pain, until they either process their pain or are able to receive the kind of love and support about what they're going through, they might not always realize that they might be taking things out on other people. I think a lot of times people might think that the person is being intentionally cruel, whereas the other person, somebody like Rebecca in this case, might not even realize the consequences of their actions or sometimes not care because they're in so much pain. So kind of like it let everything burn. Over time, as people receive love, they're able to then act in a more loving way, right? Because healed people heal people. This does not ever mean that we need to put up with abuse. If somebody's being abusive, it is not right to say, well, I just need to love them enough so that they won't be abusive. That is not the case. In fact, the most helpful thing that we can do is to let the person know how their actions are impacting us because a lot of times they don't realize it. And the individual who is taking hurtful actions needs to know how they're impacting other people so that they can then make a choice. If we're the recipient of abuse, we need to set boundaries with people that hurt us. And if we can act with kindness in a way that doesn't create an abusive cycle, in a way that doesn't harm or damage us, I think that can be the most helpful thing that we can do. And Ted managed to do that beautifully. I think he recognized right away that Rebecca was not his biggest fan. And so he started making her daily biscuits, hand making her daily biscuits, right? And being kind, but also in a way that he would not necessarily open up to her so that she wouldn't attack him in some kind of way. It seemed like he was really an open book, but as we learn in season two, he actually held a lot of his personal stuff secret. He would only disclose what he wanted people to know in terms of a way of making them think about something or realize something about themselves. So sometimes it seems like he's really transparent and sometimes maybe oversharing or over-talking, but everything Ted does has a sense of purpose to it and it's really intentional. And I think that Ted does a really nice job, especially in season one of the show, of winning people over and acting with kindness toward people that have likely been hurt, most of them, many of them, in a way that also keeps him safe. Let's talk about Ted Lasso a little bit more. Ted Lasso is a very charismatic and optimistic person. His character is very charming, and he eventually wins over everyone around him. You mentioned that he has his own things that he keeps secret, and he has some things that he's bottling up. And his wife, Michelle, is very unhappy in their marriage. In fact, he took the job in England to give her some space because she wanted some. Eventually, Michelle expresses that she does not feel the same way about Ted that she did when they first met. With that, they part ways and Ted agrees to let her divorce him so she can feel free. Whether it's Rebecca or Ted, divorce is not easy. Relationships are not easy. What Ted is holding in is not easy. It's very difficult. Can you discuss the difficulty of going through a divorce or a breakup like the ones that are portrayed on the show? Oof. Uh, yeah. No, thank you for bringing it up. I think just about everyone knows what it's like to go through a really painful breakup. I think most people know what it's like to have a relationship end unexpectedly. You and I both have been through divorce before. It is an excruciating process, even if it's amicable. 
as it was for me and my previous partner and as we see for Ted and Michelle, right? They don't fight, they're kind and respectful toward one another. And at the same time, it is still really, really difficult. I think it was really wise of Ted not to disclose what he was going through to people that could hurt him, people like Rebecca, for example. But I also think that sometimes he sort of overdoes his bubbling up, his I am fine mask, not necessarily in order to protect others, but I think in order to protect himself, I think that he doesn't open up even to Beard, really, who is his trusted confidant, about what he's going through. Even when he starts having panic attacks, he doesn't talk to anyone about it. He doesn't want to go see a therapist. He doesn't want to discuss it with Rebecca, who was the only person that realized what was happening to him. And he doesn't open up to his best friend, Coach Beard. And so I think in trying to handle everything himself, in a lot of ways, Ted is also recreating the very outcome he's trying to avoid, which is further panic attacks. Since you brought up panic attacks, this show brilliantly displays the process of panic attacks. As someone who has had a couple of panic attacks myself, you know, it, I felt for Ted. I, I could see it happening. We watch as Ted has a few major panic attacks in the show. One is even filmed live at one of their games. Can you talk about panic attacks and how frightening they are and how to best respond to one when one starts to develop? Absolutely. A lot of people don't know what panic attacks are and people who've never had one might assume that a panic attack is just feeling a little bit nervous. It's not. A panic attack feels like a medical emergency. It often feels like we might pass out or have a heart attack. It might feel like we might lose control or quote unquote go crazy. What happens is essentially an extreme surge of adrenaline. A panic attack feels dangerous, but it's not actually dangerous. It's no more dangerous than running around the block, for example, which is where we get that surge of adrenaline as well, right? And so if you climb up 10 flights of stairs, you might feel really out of breath. Your heart might be pounding. Your vision might be going in and out. You might feel sweaty. You might be dizzy. And you might not question it because you just went up 10 flights of stairs. When we get those same symptoms while sitting down or seemingly out of nowhere, we think that something's wrong. But usually what's happening is we're getting the surge of adrenaline and sometimes again, it seems as if it happens out of nowhere. But usually it could be a minor reminder that could have even happened the day before or two days prior about something that could have happened 10 years before that we might not even realize. And a lot of times panic attacks could happen because of previously unprocessed grief or trauma. They could also happen due to certain biological changes. For example, lack of sleep or lack of food. Very commonly it can happen due to certain substances. So sometimes people might engage in illicit substance use and have a panic attack and think they're going to die. And that could be a very traumatic experience for them. Whatever is the precipitant of a panic attack, labeling a panic attack can be a really helpful thing. So realizing, oh, okay, I'm having a panic attack. My heart is pounding. My vision's going in and out. I feel dizzy. This is a panic attack. That can help a lot because it can remind us that this is not a dangerous situation. Most people fear that if they're having a panic attack because they feel really, really dizzy and they feel like they're going to faint, they believe that they might actually faint. And therefore, if they're driving, for example, crash, or if they're walking, that they might fall down on the ground. Or if they're in some kind of a social event like a wedding, they might believe that they're going to faint and cause a scene. In 99.9% .9 of cases, with the exception of people with certain blood diseases, it is actually impossible to faint from a panic attack. This is not medical advice. This is just kind of a research summary. So please don't take it as medical advice. Like I said, with the exception of some blood diseases, for most people having a panic attack, I can actually prevent them from fainting. We faint when our blood pressure drops. For some people, it happens when they see blood. So people with blood injection phobia. For some people, it might happen if they haven't eaten for a few days or if they're heat stroked. 
in these situations, our blood pressure drops. When we're having a panic attack, our blood pressure goes up. And actually, the adrenaline in our body is keeping us awake. So we feel dizzy because our blood vessels constrict and our vision changes very quickly because now our pupils dilate. So everything feels a little bit overwhelming. Our senses are heightened. In a way, we're becoming a superhero in that moment because we can see and hear everything to a really large extent, kind of like what happened to Spider-Man when he was first bitten by a radioactive spider. But none of it is dangerous. So if you're having a panic attack, remind yourself, you will not pass out, your adrenaline won't let you, and this is not dangerous. It's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. And so the best thing to do when having a panic attack is actually to go to a place that is less stimulating. So maybe to a bathroom or a car or somewhere where you can be in a little bit of a quiet space and to sit back and breathe and wait it out. I look at panic attack as kind of like food poisoning if we throw up as much as we might not want to, sometimes it's really not in our control, but if we throw up, we feel better afterwards. With a panic attack, it's just like it. We just have to wait it out and let it happen. And afterwards we'll feel better. If possible, if you have a loved one with you or someone you can contact, just letting them know I'm having a panic attack, please hold my hand and we don't need to do anything else can be helpful because a lot of times we might feel the pressure to quote unquote, hold it together or appear as if everything's going all right. And so sometimes that secrecy can actually put more pressure on us and make us feel worse. After having one, it might be easier to have another because we might realize that these are not dangerous. I can get through it and I can be okay. For most people, the first panic attack feels the worst because they don't know what it is. They think they're having a heart attack or some kind of a medical emergency. Don't be embarrassed if you went to the emergency room and the doctors ran all kinds of tests and that's wonderful. It's better be safe than sorry. And then a lot of times the doctors in the emergency room will say it was most likely a panic attack because this is something they see often. It's a daily occurrence, right? It's something doctors see on a regular basis. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. And if this is something that you went through, know that next time it happens, you know you have your skills now. You can remind yourself this is a panic attack. It's not dangerous. Go to a quiet place, breathe, and wait it out. This was such a wonderful little discussion. and Thank you for this. I've had two major panic attacks in my life. The first one, I didn't know what the hell was going on at all. But I remember the situation, and I remember freaking out, running to a bathroom, thinking I was going to throw up. Everything went all weird, black and white. Felt like my oxygen was being taken out of my brain or something. I didn't know what it was. Second one I had, had the same kind of feeling where it went black and it felt like oxygen was being, <laughs> like I was going to faint, like kind of how you said. And I did go to the emergency room and they did end up running all these tests and telling me it was a panic attack. But the good thing is, once you name it, once you know it, kind of like how you were saying, it's so much easier because since then I've been able to recognize what's going on, recognize that a panic attack's coming on and I can just... I know what it is and it starts calming down and then it goes away. So I've had probably two or three after the big one where I went to the emergency room. And there's an expression, name it and you tame it, right? So just naming it can make us feel better because we know what's happening. We've been through it before. We're going to get through it again. It's uncomfortable, but kind of like throwing up. It's uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. And then the second expression that I also really like is feel it and you heal it. So allowing yourself to sit with that adrenaline reaction can allow you to feel better. What I sometimes have my clients do, again, please don't take this as medical advice, talk to your doctor before implementing any skills discussed in this episode. But what I have my clients do is practice for a panic attack. So I have them do a cardio exercise, for example, 20 jumping jacks or running around the block or purposely running up and down the stairs. And then immediately after to sit down for three to five minutes and feel those symptoms, which are uncomfortable, right? But it's almost like a panic attack practice, like panic attack drill, if you will, to where people then feel these symptoms and then they breathe and then their body learns that I can feel these symptoms and these are not dangerous. So once again, please don't take these as medical advice. Please talk to your doctor before practicing any of these skills. And if you're interested in learning more about panic attacks, I highly recommend a book called Panic Attacks Workbook by David Carbonell. 
I like how you said name it and tame it. I just sit there and be saying my first rodeo, (laughs) (laughs) you know, anyway, this is such a good thing to discuss and talk about because panic attacks are pretty prevalent for everybody. Eventually you might have one. So let's get back to the TV show here. Rebecca is a woman in power that eventually takes the pain of her divorce and really starts becoming a very strong and capable leader. The character Keely Jones also becomes a powerful leader. She's a marketing professional and she does PR and she is so good and so wonderful at it. She eventually opens up her own PR firm. These two women in power are very supportive of one another and become great friends. Hi, babe. Hi. Have you got a second? Of course. I'm so sorry. No, don't be. It's good. You helped this panda become a lion. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Thank you. Holy fucking shit. Oh, no. Now what? Rufus just bought West Ham United. No. (sighs) And to think for a second, I thought him giving me his shares in the club was a kind gesture. You know, I'm actually quite reassured to find out that he is still just a selfish, conniving cock. Mm. I mean, it does return a certain balance to the universe, doesn't it? (laughs) Promise me you will not go and work for him. He can't afford me. Mm. Richmond is my football club, you know that. Mm. Well, let's see if we get promoted. We might not want to work with us. (laughs) That's fair. Bit of advice for being a boss. Hire your best friend. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm crying again. <laughs> Can you discuss this relationship? Why this type of behavior of supporting someone else like this is so important? I'm really glad you asked this question because there are actually three powerful women on the show. There's Rebecca, there's Keely, and then there's Dr. Sharon Fieldstone. And also there is the bar owner. I forgot her name. She's a powerful woman. She's somebody that won't put up with any nonsense. What was really nice was to see the kind of relationship that Rebecca and Keely have in supporting one another, in encouraging each other, in really growing in their leadership. Keely starts out as she's a model. She's also somebody that sort of hides behind her relationship with Jamie. She puts up with his antics and allows him to have naked pictures of her in his public locker that everybody can see. It's actually Ted that covered her up with tape, pictures of of her body parts with tape. And over time, she learns to stand up for herself and for what she wants. And it's really great to see her and Rebecca encourage one another. We see the two of them talking about power and business and growth. And I just think that it was really important for women and for men and for people of all gender identities watching the show to see this dynamic between two women and how it can be empowering instead of toxic. You had mentioned her, and speaking of powerful women, you had mentioned Dr. Sharon Fieldstone. She's a sports psychologist that ends up being hired by the team. As she's working with the team, she has great results with them. And eventually, Ted musters up the courage to see her. And after a few abrupt sessions, he ends up embracing his vulnerability and begins his healing process with her. Ted, you scared me. Are you okay? I want to make an appointment. To me, she comes off as a brilliant therapist. What do you think about Dr. Fieldstone and her portrayal in the series as a psychologist? I thought it was great. I think that she was really good at creating a balance between being compassionate and also assertive. What I really liked is that there were a number of times that Ted tried to have a session with her and then he would run out the door. And then when he started opening up a little bit, we saw him get 
defensive and then attack her. I take it you're not a fan of this kind of work? No, ma'am. Why is that, do you think? You want the truth? I'm only interested in the truth, Ted. Hmm. Because I think it's bullshit. You don't know me. We don't have history. And yet you just expect me to spill my guts about all the gory details of my life. The fights, the mistakes, my deep, dark secrets. But you ain't listening because you care about me. No. No, you ain't listening to me because you paid to listen to me. You getting paid to just jot down your little notes and diagnose my tears and then what? Probably just blame it on my folks, right? I mean, you say you're only interested in the truth. And yet here you are, charging an hourly rate for only 50 minutes of work. Like I said, it's bullshit. He essentially insulted her by saying that she charges for an hour but sees patients for 50 minutes, as all psychologists do, really, some for 45 minutes, and accused her of not caring about her patients because she's charging for her services. What I really appreciated is that she didn't let him get away with it. In the same way as Ted, I think, makes his players face consequences for their actions, in their next meeting together, Dr. Fieldstone was able to tell Ted that she was really hurt by his words. Hello, Ted. I thought you'd be back. Really? Why's that? You said you never quit. Can I be honest with you about something? Would I got a boogie in my stash? No, I'm kidding. Sorry, go ahead. I was quite offended by what you said about my profession. That just because a therapist is being paid, they don't actually care. Let me ask you something. Would you coach for free? Yeah, I would. But do you? No, ma'am. And yet you care about your players, right? Yes, ma'am. Then why would you assume it's not the same for me? I don't assume that all coaches are macho dickheads. <laughs> That's a good point. Consider me dunked on. <laughs> and look, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. You know, getting all worked up and saying stuff like that, then storming out of here. It happens. Self care can be scary. Fight or flight is a natural response. You just happen to do both. Impressive range, really. Watch your back, Glenn Close. <laughs> so you think I'm scared, huh? Yes, I do. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to learn the truth. Ted, the truth will set you free. But first, it'll piss you off. Well, then maybe your new nickname should be the truth. Well, I can't be your mentor without occasionally being your tormentor. Ooh, I like that. I knew you would. <laughs> Let's get started, shall we? Yes, ma'am. I think she was also able to be continuously professional with him. I loved the episode where we saw her having a phone session with her own therapist who encouraged her to be vulnerable with Ted. For Dr. Fieldstone, that was really, really challenging in general, not, not just with her therapist, but you know, with anyone. What I really appreciated was that there was an episode that presented that opportunity naturally, that when she got hurt, Ted showed up and assisted her and brought her home. She still acted in a very professional way, but it was because she was able to later tell him over the phone that she was scared, that I think he later in subsequent episodes trusted her enough to let her know about what happened with his father. And sometimes for therapists, it's important to create that fine balance between not oversharing to the point that the client feels like they have to take care of us, but self-disclosing a little bit to the point to where the client knows that we're authentic, that we're on the same page, that there is no hierarchy, that we're two people in the same room or on the same Zoom page, if you will. She finally finds that balance between professionalism and authenticity, which is a really delicate balance. And it's because of that, that he feels safe enough to tell her about his father's suicide. Yeah. Common humanity. Absolutely. 
brings it together. So I want to ask one final question before we wrap this up, because I think it's very important. When Ted has this panic attack at the game and he runs out of the stadium and it's filmed and it's even discussed on sports networks and in newspapers, Ted's behavior is initially rumored as a bad case of diarrhea. However, later on, after divulging his panic attack to his coaching staff, Nate anonymously shares the truth with a reporter and tells the reporter that he actually had a panic attack. After this story breaks out, people look at Ted differently and sports broadcasters voice their concern about someone mentally ill running a sports team. The headline this morning is the news that Ted Lasso left in the middle of the Tottenham match this season, not due to stomach problems, but because of a panic attack. Lasso appears to be uh, leaving. George, Lasso's clearly not fit to coach. Come on now, George, be compassionate. Oh, come on, come on, Jeff, come on. Would, would uh, Bill Shankly have a panic attack? Edward Brian Clough, would Alex Ferguson have a panic oh, attack? Be course he, fair. No, of course he wouldn't. Look, if, if your ship's been attacked, right, and you run to the bridge, you want to find a captain whose brain works. It's lovely that the show tackles the mental health stigma, but also humanizes mental health struggles. Why do you think mental health is so stigmatized in our world still today? And what do you think about this show's focus on it? I think the mere fact that the show had such a focus on it, I think is allowing more and more people to talk about it. I've had multiple clients tell me that they feel a strong sense of connection with Ted because they too are in leadership roles and have a history of panic attacks and have been afraid of divulging this information. And I think the show, as you said, humanizes mental health. Hey, settle down, y'all. Okay, okay, easy, easy now. Easy. Hey, hey, y'all, come on, calm down. All right? Look, um, well, right at the cricket bat here, I want to address the article written by our good friend, Mr. Trent Krim, from the... Or rather... I want to share with you all the truth about my recent struggles with anxiety. And, well, my overall concern about the way we discuss and deal with mental health in athletics. The fact that Ted was able to then disclose to the reporters about panic attacks, about what he's been going through, and then further be able to advocate for mental health awareness, I think is presenting one of the themes of the show, which is common humanity, which is understanding the human condition. You know, I think on the surface, the show might appear to be about football or soccer, if you will, depending on which country you're from, but it's not about that. It's about leadership. It's about growth. It's about connection. It's about resilience. It's about overcoming obstacles and abuse, and it's about mental health. And I think the show is absolutely brilliant for that. And I think that it's inspiring a lot of people to talk about what they're going through also. Yes, it's such a wonderful show. Highly recommend it. I love the show. I love how brilliant it is. I love how charming it is. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, my name is Dustin. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm at Shadow Quill on Twitter and Dr. Janina Scarlett Official on Instagram. For all of our listeners out there, we are sending out free signed copies of Dr. Scarlett's book, Dark Agents, Book One, Violet and the Trial of Trauma. To enter the drawing, all you have to do is tweet about this podcast with the hashtag Superhero Therapy Podcast. We will choose one lucky listener every month to receive their free copy. Unfortunately, due to high postage costs, international listeners will not be eligible for this promotion. Stay safe out there, everybody. Stay kind and take care.